0: Hi, this is Angela Breidenbach, and we're here with Historically Speaking. This is a show where we go back and we talk about all the love stories from history, not just love stories, but true love stories. So if in the future you have an ancestral love story that you'd like to share, you are welcome to apply to be on the show as well by contacting me at AngelaBreidenbach.com just send me a message on your contact page, tell me a little bit about your um, ancestor's love story, and we'll then go through and see if you fit the show. So feel free to apply, and we'll go from there. Also today, we're exciting. we're going to have a very exciting show, because we have Rebecca DiMarino on our show. Her tagline is Love, Legends, and Lore. And we are going to get into that a little bit now, because Rebecca is going to share with us how her ancestors met and fell in love, and how she used that in her book To Follow Her Heart that came out in July of 2016. This book is um, published by Ravel and Baker, and it's about the duty in love. Only one has the power to make Patience Terry's life complete in a world of high seas, tall ships, daring journeys, and yearning hearts. Doesn't that make you want to hear the story? Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is going to be so awesome because I understand you did some genealogy to find out more about your ancestors and you landed on your ninth great grandparents. Can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered that story?
1: Well, it really starts with my mother who grew up hearing stories about our ninth great-grandparents. It was all pretty much handed down orally uh, through the oral tradition, and we knew that he had come from England on a little ship called the Swallow, uh, but we didn't know too much more. And my brother, who became interested in genealogy in uh, the 1990s, he is actually the one that discovered each generation that led back to barnabas and he didn't have documentation in place but uh he found enough supporting evidence that it did link us with barnabas and my mother who was born a horton um, got very excited and we discovered there was a lighthouse on long island named after barnabas And she wanted to go see it. So in 1999, I flew out to uh, South Hold, Long Island with my mom. And we went to the lighthouse, which was commissioned by George Washington in the 1700s. Really? And Mary came over in the 1600s. But George Washington was on Long Island uh, during the Revolutionary War. And he... uh, commissioned the land that was uh, Horton land for the lighthouse and it was built in the 1800s and named after uh, Barnabas Horton.
0: Did Barnabas actually build the lighthouse or did did he have someone else build the lighthouse?
1: No, it was actually built by the U.S. Lighthouse Services in 1857. So, Holy this is quite a bit after Barnabas, um, but it was the the visit to the lighthouse that sparked my interest in our history in the family. I began to learn more about Barnabas and Mary when they came over in the 1630s.
0: Did they meet in England or did they meet in the U.S.?
1: They met in England, uh, in Mousley, England, and uh, They married in England as well. Barnabas was a widower, a very recent widower, when he married Mary. And that uh, I discovered as I researched it that his first wife had died in 1629, and Mm -hmm. he married my ninth-great-grandmother, Mary Langdon Horton, just months later. He had two small sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And he was a baker. In those days, they remarried quite quickly due to the needs of having a mother for the children. So, what I thought about when I thought about their story, I thought it must have been very difficult at first. And about five years later, they made the journey. They left family and home and came over to New England. And what I imagined was it wasn't all sugar and roses it, it had to have been very difficult and probably a marriage of convenience Mary was a young woman when she married him without children of her own it was a first marriage for her so when you write a novel based in the 1600s <laughs> about real people you take the facts that you know the fact that he was a widower had two little boys and remarried very quickly And then you apply the goals and the motivations and the desires that your characters might have had. Uh, So I wrote my story that Mary had fallen in love with the baker, and he married her while he was still grieving.
0: Right. That's, That's fascinating to me because I have a very similar story that I talked about in the last show, which is my own grandparents. And they married because of town gossip. He was a widower. And they married very quickly after. And the reason was that the town gossiped so much that they had to save her reputation. They didn't believe in any outward appearance of evil, which is, you know, very biblical. And so it's really interesting to us today in our modern sensibilities that we don't have a concept or an understanding of that kind of motivation. Because we don't consider the appearance of evil the same as they did uh, historically and even in modern history because my grandparents married in um, 1930 so here we are 300 years after your ninth great grandparents and it's still very uh, relevant but then we move forward we're what 90 years later almost you know yes. <laughs> and that <laughs> is no longer something in modern memory isn't that fascinating
1: that's true although I would say that people still get married probably for the wrong reasons. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think some of it still, still holds true that, um, you know, there might not, there might be a a different set of um, viewpoints on values and uh, what is considered proper or, But I think that um, the problems that Mary and Barnabas experienced when it was a marriage of convenience instead of for love could be still relevant today for people who have married for financial security or for other reasons
0: that Mm -hmm. might exist. Escaping a difficult family situation, thinking that they're going to go into something better. Um, Now, tell me something. Back in England, about this time, a lot of the pilgrims were coming over. Were they pilgrims?
1: Um, Barnabas was a Puritan. And so they they came over during the Great Migration, during the 1630s. So the pilgrims on the Mayflower, as we think of the pilgrims, came over in the 1620s. And then in the 1630s began what was referred to as the Great Migration, and that was basically Puritans and some Quakers that were experiencing persecution in England. And they came over, many with the idea that they would start a new church, uh, many with the idea that they would not uh, start a new church, but have the Church of England become what they perceived it should be. Mm-hmm. and uh, so there was conformists and nonconformists, and Barnabas was a nonconformist and Mary, in my novel um to give it a little tension i I wrote her as an Anglican maiden, and mm-hmm. I did that on purpose <laughs> because oh. every novel needs some conflict, <laughs> so
0: you don't so, know for. F- that, that Mary was Anglican, you added that to the tension of the story.
1: Right. What what I could, there, there was much more information about Barnabas. Um, they were large landowners. In fact, they were the largest landowner in Mousley, England.
0: How do you spell that? Just so people can kind of look it up if they want to on a map, on a Google map. It's,
1: it's M-O-W-S-L-E-Y. Just like it sounds. Just like it sounds, and well, and even uh, the ancient spelling was M-O-U-S-E-L-Y. So on his Mm -hmm. tombstone, which is in uh, South Hold, Long Island, it is spelled uh, with the (laughs) (laughs) M-O-U-S-E-L-Y, which gave me a little fit, but um, when I was trying to find (laughs) if I was really at the right uh, place that he was from, but yes, it has a modern-day spelling.
0: You know, and this is an interesting thing. I I try to give a genealogy tip in every show. One of the things that's fascinating about spelling is that we, again, in our modern sensibilities, here's your genealogy tip, folks. We think that things are spelled properly all the way through history, and they're not. I have an ancestor that came over in um, the 1600s right around that time as well. I think uh, maybe prior to yours. And his name was John Biglow, B-I-G-L-O. And now the name Bigelow has morphed into B-I-G-E-L-O-W. You might know it from Bigelow Tea, Bigelow Carpets. Yes, they are my yeah. distant cousins. <laughs> yeah. But so uh, here's the tip to folks out there. Make sure that you don't get so hung up on the spelling that you miss the trail that you're searching for. Because like Rebecca just pointed out, even a town or a location name could be spelled differently. And it might have been spelled Mousely, M-O-U-S-E-L-Y, or it could have been spelled L-E-Y, but the reason is quite often... They had people writing things that either they didn't know how to spell or it was the Englishized version versus the new Americanized version. You know, there's a lot of different things that come into play, but we also forget that there's even handwriting. And then we go also from the country. So say that town was named by a person from France or from, you know, a different country in the arena of that area. And that could also affect the spelling. So don't be so hung up on your spelling that you miss the trail you're searching for and be willing to look for different spellings that just don't even make sense to you because S's, the letter S as in sugar, um, were often spelled looking like the letter, our modern letter F as in Frank. So there's a lot of things. So even if you're looking up mousely, you might, it might actually look visually like M-O-U-F is in Frank. Yep. So there's and your tip for the and I'm going to ask Rebecca. Because at- <laughs> <laughs> it's true
1: for first names, surnames, uh,
0: <laughs> location? That's true. Yeah. So now, how did you actually stumble on these people?
1: It was it, back in, South Hold, when we went to see the lighthouse, we also visited the library and the historical society, uh, mm-hmm. both great places for when you're uh, trying to trace your genealogy. And there was so much information about Barnabas, not so much about Mary. Barnabas built the first timber-framed house in South Hold, on the, uh, I should say, on the eastern half of Long Island. Uh, his grave is right across from the, the site of the house in the cemetery with a big blue slab of slate that covers it. Mm-hmm. It was re-lettered in the 1800s, mm-hmm. and you can still read he, he, what they say. He wrote his own epitaph, and a Bible really? verse that was on it was Hebrews 11:4, He being dead yet speaketh. And I thought, wow, and in this epitaph, he talked basically to the future generations of his children, and that's mm-hmm. when I went home and kept thinking about Mary, so I had all this information about Mary, and I wanted to give her a voice, because the women mm-hmm. that came over during that time period were very courageous to leave family and home and what they knew like, to a wild new land, and I just really wanted to give her and the other women a voice. And that's what got that. me started on the series. Now, my latest book, um, Follow Her Heart, is the third book in the series. And what mm-hmm. I did for the series is I took the Hortons and South Long Island up a decade each time. What I knew um, from the genealogy was that on the ship called the Swallow that they came over on, Barnabas's brother Jeremy was actually the captain, and oh, uh, interesting! Yes, I thought that was very it had to be pretty unusual. But he brought his uh, brother and his brother's family over, and so the third book I wrote uh, with Jeremy as being my hero.
0: And does Jeremy have a love life? Well, he didn't so much the first
1: two books because. He loved the sea. (laughs) He was mostly gone, made an appearance every once in a while, but it was kind of fun. I had a fictitious character named Patience Terry in the first book that came over on the ship with them. She took a liking to Jeremy, especially in book two, but he he was always gone, and she never married because she wanted to marry a, a man as honorable as Barnabas. He was kind of an idol to her. And so the, the third book is Patience and Jeremy's story.
0: Now let's go back to, to Mary and Barnabas. Did you by chance find any uh, journals or letters or because, you know, George Washington is involved here. Was there possibly anything that was preserved historically about Mary and Barnabas's um, life or love letters or journals or family letters?
1: I would have so much loved to have something like that. Um, unfortunately, there are no uh, primary documents that exist like that, of that nature in Southhold. They did have a fire that destroyed records, but also the women, so now remember they came over in the 1600s and George Washington was like a century later when he commissioned that property to be become the site of the lighthouse back in the it's 1600s. interesting how long
0: that took that for them coming over in the 1700s, was- george washington is more the late 1700s and then the yeah. lighthouse wasn't built they said, until 1857
1: right it was finally built in 1857 and no one uh, was
0: left alive that was the original part of this and yet it still can't this is the whole point of telling these stories I want everybody listening to capture this thing right here. Mary and Barnabas, 1630s, George Washington, late 1700s. They all together created this legacy of love that creates something that is still standing today that drew Rebecca to learn. And that's what I want to instill in in all of us is that depth of generational continuity. That you today can do the same thing that Barnabas and Mary did back in the 1630s and that George Washington did in the late 1700s. And that somebody who built the lighthouse in the middle of the 1800s, 1800s. that's a huge span of time. You can be that too. Okay. Excellent point. Yes.
1: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) What else
0: do we know about Mary and Barnabas that um, get into their love story for us? Well, they did come over
1: with Barnabas's two little boys, and then they, uh, they came to Massachusetts first and spent about two years there, and then they came down with the Reverend Youngs uh, to, to build the church in Southhold. And it was under the authority of the church in New Haven. They pretty much created the, the township there, and Barnabas, along with 12 other families, Barnabas and Mary and 12 other families, were the founding families. Mary had to have been very supportive of of Barnabas, and I don't know her role other than the role of every other woman probably in the town, and that would have been working from dawn until they went to bed late at night, keeping the home fires going, and providing food and um, tending the gardens, milking the cow. <laughs> uh, they worked very hard, and that's one of the reasons why they didn't have much time to write a diary or really record what they were doing. There's very few diaries from that, that time period, except for per- perhaps in Plymouth, Alice Bradford did keep a diary, and she was the wife of the governor, so she probably had a little bit more not much, but perhaps a little bit more. So she she was very supportive of that. In my novel, what what oh what, one fact I do know about Barnabas he went on to be a magistrate. He was very involved in the town's government and uh, in the church. So uh, as a baker, he was probably splitting his duties. So in my story, Mary steps in and really becomes the baker of the town.
0: Oh, wow. There's a change. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I
1: felt like with what I knew as fact about Barnabas once he came to Southhold, um, I couldn't picture him spending his days in front of the oven.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was really interesting because as you're talking about your family and how they came over and what they all did and how there's, you know, different, some documentation from other people's records. And I told you about John Biglow, my original ancestor that came over from, from England. He and his wife were the first documented marriage in Massachusetts. Wow. And I thought, yeah, isn't that cool? That is <laughs> and then I'm just, cool. then from their son, Joshua, you know, goes down that line. But when you start to find, this is what fascinated me about hearing these stories and about hearing your story is that if these people hadn't married and loved, we wouldn't be here today. And I know that sounds really, you know, duh, but the reality is this is all, like you said, these women had courage. Why would somebody want to go on a ship across the ocean at that time? They didn't even know if they'd arrive alive due to disease, okay. dysentery, the, the rickets that were going on, then they'd get here and they, they don't realize what they don't know. And one of the things they don't realize that they don't know is this is a different climate, a different soil, and the seeds that they've brought won't grow. Here we have women that have, like your Mary, who's agreed to be the mother of two little boys and come across the ocean, and now she's got to figure out how to feed her family with her husband. And can you hard. imagine what yeah. she? They they put their pillows, you know, their heads on their pillows at night, and look at each other. Did they go to bed hungry? Did they go to bed upset with each other? Did they go to bed clinging to each other, saying, "We'll make it through," you know?
1: Right. Yeah. It's uh, that's what I I really think about when I think about Barnabas and Mary coming over. Is that they didn't know what would meet them on the other side of the ocean they didn't Mm -hmm. they heard stories and some of them were horror stories you know but uh, they didn't really know what what would meet them and it wasn't easy it wasn't easy I think that fact that our families did descend I you mentioned about one little turn of events and we wouldn't be here Um, I took my sisters back to South Hold Long Island and took them up to the historical society and I was doing some research and my sisters were getting to see South Hold for the first time and the director there uh, was talking about you know his ancestors and my sister said well I, I don't really care so much about genealogy or the past and he said well, I didn't either until I realized that one little turn of events and I wouldn't be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so. true. And it's beautiful when you start to look at statistically, we are all an anomaly. It's just astonishing that that we could exist and be here. And so I think telling these love stories like this, it's really important, not only for a sense of belonging, but also for that sense of wonderment, how these people, their, uh, how do you, you know, their faith even, how do you equate what they did and their faith life? And we have about three minutes left.
1: Well, I think that what they had to depend on and learn, if they didn't know it to begin with, but I suspect they knew it, is that God is always with us. You know. If we ask him to, he'll hold our hand and go through all of life's journeys. And that was especially important back then, and their faith was important to them. And I think it's depending on God to walk with you and be with you.
0: You I can see that. He
1: gives us a free will, but whatever path we choose, we need him with us.
0: (laughs) I could see them, you know, going to bed at night, not knowing if their crops were going to grow, or if they were going to find, you know, uh, a deer or even a wild boar to be able to feed their families, you know, or if they could acquire livestock. And I could see them um, clinging to each other at night, just just praying, God, can you help us provide for the kids tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, you know, they had to depend on him. Yeah. And then the kids having to learn to be a part of that subsistence living and, and that coming over from England, you know, were they wealthy in England and then arriving here, wealth didn't really matter, did it?
1: It didn't matter so much. Although um, what I discovered with uh, Barnabas and I'm sure other little townships and colonies were set up the same way. He was the largest landowner in Mousley and he wound up being the largest landowner in South hold. And that was because of his wealth. And that Hmm. was pretty curious to me because he was a baker. So I handled that in my books though. (laughs) Fascinating
0: (laughs) thing for people (laughs) to read. Well, Rebecca, tell us what's your next book? uh, Yes. I I just
1: finished um, my fourth novel and it's once again, a love story, and it's once again based on real people, but not uh-huh. my ancestors. But it's set in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and uh-huh. uh, my agent has it at the moment, and we're going to see where it goes from there. And then my uh-huh. next project is about Betty Zane, who is uh, a Revolutionary War hero. She was 16 years old when she ran through enemy fire with some more gunpowder so that the yeah. fort in Wheeling so, could be saved.
0: <laughs> you said Betty Zane. So if you're listening and your ancestor was a part of the American Revolution, then uh, this may be a story about your family. <laughs> We're out of time. And I want to thank you so much for being with us, Rebecca Di Marino. And uh, you can find her at RebeccaDeMarino.com. And you can find me at AngelaBreidenbach.com. And that's B-R-E-I-D-E-N-B-A-C-H. And Rebecca DeMarino is D-E-M-A-R-I-N-O. You can find her on Twitter and other social media at Rebecca DeMarino. You can find me on Twitter. And we hope that you'll be with us again next month on January 6th when we'll explore another true ancestral love story. Thanks. See you then. Thank
1: you so much, Angela.
0: You're so welcome.